buttons we can get the sound out to you. Good to have you all with us today. Very quickly, I just want to remind those of you that are uh, still planning on going to Israel, you do need to get your forms as quick as possible. Sign in at the office. You'll pick up one of these forms, and uh, it'll give you all the information that you need. We need to get this rolling very quickly because we don't have that much time left to uh, have them uh, uh, get uh, the flights and, uh, and everything that we need for that trip. So uh, if you have any questions, please uh, feel free to ask me. But uh, uh, I've mentioned it before and just need you all to get, get to cracking on uh, turning those into inspired travel. And all the information that you need is on, on the form itself. Okay. Good having you all with us today. Would you all please turn to Genesis chapter 29. <clears throat> As you're turning to Genesis 29, I, I do want to mention to you that uh, uh, Maria Garcia, who is uh, Gilbert Garcia's wife, who uh, they uh, run the uh, James R. Ganley School in Juarez and are part of our ministry here. Uh, Maria went into the hospital last night, the emergency. Uh, they discovered a mass uh, in, in her body and... and uh, they were supposed to do some emergency surgery last night. They didn't, uh, weren't able to. Uh, they were supposed to do it at 7 o'clock this morning. Uh, doctor uh, hadn't shown up. But uh, between services now, she has been in surgery and is out in recovery. So if you would, please lift up uh, Maria in prayer uh, this week, uh, especially today. Uh, I understand that uh, everything, I guess, went well, so we're, we're thankful for that. But join me now. Let's let's pray and, and just ask God's blessing on on Maria and Gilbert, and uh, then we'll pray for our service as well. Father, thank you so much for uh, having been Lord with Maria this this morning and throughout this whole time this uh, weekend. I know that it has been very painful for her, but we're thankful for your uh, great care and concern for your children. And we ask you to bless Maria, Lord, with quick recovery. Uh, be with Gilbert as well. I know that he's going through some some uh, voice problems, and uh, so we ask you to heal him as well. But we, we lift up the whole family to you. I know this has been a very uh, tough time and ordeal, but Lord God, through these things, we know that you strengthen us, and we certainly pray, Father, that you would continue uh, to bring healing to uh, Maria's body through this recovery time. And then we, let, we ask, Lord God, that you would just bring us, Father, to the understanding of your word through the power of your Holy Spirit. Grant us wisdom, understanding encouragement, exhortation. Lord, stir our hearts where we need to be stirred. Encourage us, Lord, where we need to be encouraged. And strengthen us, Lord God, in the midst of our weaknesses when we, when we do face the troubles and the trials of our lives. Lord, we, we look forward to you encouraging us now. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Genesis 29, verse 15. And following. We've been looking at the life of Jacob as we've been going through the, the book of Genesis for a few years now. And, uh, but it's been a joy. And Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, had a very interesting beginning because while in the womb of his mother Rebecca, he and his twin brother Esau decided it was important to wrestle. And there was a tremendous stirring inside of Rebecca. And God said to them, 
the elder is going to serve the younger. They didn't know what was going to happen after Esau and Jacob were born. But as they grew, sides were taken. Isaac loved Esau. Rebecca loved Jacob. That favoritism was a problem in that household. But Jacob aptly named Yaakov, supplanter, deceiver, heel catcher. Even at their birth, Esau's trying to get born there and he's holding on to his heel. Hey, no, 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 me. Let me go first. And kind of indicated somewhat of his life. Wanted Esau's birthright. He got it by deception. Wanted Esau's blessing. Got it by deception. Somewhere along the line, the Lord is going to intervene. And he did. It was time now for Jacob to go on the run because... Esau was just not a happy camper with his brother. Rebecca said, listen, why don't you go to, to my family's home in Haran, to my brother Laban, and stay over there for a few days. Let Esau cool off. But Jacob would be gone for longer than a few days. Actually, it would be in Haran for 20 years. And the person that he would probably want to come back to in Beersheba was, was, would be his mother, but she would pass away while he was away. Nonetheless, he goes on this journey. About 70 miles outside of Beersheba, he goes to sleep, his head on a rock, and he, and he dreams a dream, and he, and he sees this stairway with angels ascending and descending, and at the top of the stairway he sees God and realizes here is that access to God. And God speaks to Jacob. And God blesses Jacob. Now, up to this point, we have not seen that Jacob has really cared much about God. But now the Lord speaks to him and he says to him, Jacob, I'm going to bless you with the blessing of Abraham. And then I'm going to be with you. I'm going to have my presence with you and then I'm going to protect you and then I'm going to provide for you. And then you in that blessing of Abraham are going to be a father of an innumerable number of people. Jacob awoke from this dream and, and he established a place of worship in a, in a place that had once been called separation, Luz, which was pretty much a good reminder of, of how he was separated from God. But now, he calls it Bethel, house of God, where he met God. 
and where God met him, where God spoke to him. I hope you've all had your Bethel. Have you had your Bethel? Have you had your place where you can call the place where God met me, the house of God? Is your Bethel right here with you, the place where you meet God? And he goes back on to his journey and he's got this spring in his step and a song in his heart because his life has changed. God has revealed himself to him. And the God who was once the God of Abraham and Isaac now is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And he goes with this knowledge to Haran and he comes to a well right outside the city and, and there he meets these shepherds and, and, the, uh, and he says, hey listen, do you all know Laban? He says, yeah, we know Laban. Well, is he still alive? Yeah, he's still alive. And by the way, here comes Rachel, his daughter. Pow! Right across the kisser, man. He sees her and he says, that's the one. Once. Demeter goes to her Kind of does things a little backwards. He goes to her and he kisses her. Then he tells her, oh, by the way, I'm Rebecca's son. I'm your father's nephew. She runs because I'm pretty sure she probably kind of liked him, even though he was 77 years old. She runs and tells Laban that Jacob is here. And Laban runs out and greets him and kisses him all over. And then he says, come to my house and stay here for a while. And he stays a month, we're told. And that's where we pick up in this story. Now, you have to understand that in that month, something happens. Jacob just doesn't sit around like if he's at some spa. There must be some work that he's been doing because in this month's time... Jacob becomes industrious. Probably, let me just kind of insert this, my own thinking, but, but probably Jacob said, you know what, I'm going to go out and help that shepherd as Rachel with the sheep. So he could be a little closer to her, possibly. In any event, Laban takes notice. Look at verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now, Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years. For Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So, Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love, because of the love he had for her. So the plot thickens. But I want to ask you a few questions. What, what would be the life response of Jacob after having had such a powerful and life-changing experience in Bethel, the house of God, where his life had been drastically impacted for eternity? What would be the life response? In other words, 
what response would Jacob have to his conversion? Now, think about your own conversion. Think about the day that you met Jesus Christ. Think about the day that he came into your life. And you were radically changed. And you began to see everything differently. And you began to read the Word and the Word made sense. Whereas in time past it didn't make a whole lot of sense to you. And then you began to realize that He had placed His Spirit within you. And there was within you now this greater desire to know Him and to serve Him and to love Him and to love His people and to do those things that would honor God. That's a life response, isn't it? A life-changing response. So what would be that life response of Jacob after having had such an experience? And then how much of this, of this experience with El Shaddai, with, with God Almighty, did Jacob carry in his heart as he traveled meaningfully and purposefully to the home of his relatives in Haran? How much of that did he carry with him as he's got that new spring in his step and that song in his heart? How much? How long have you carried that spring in your step and that song in your heart? Because I know some of you have been a believer in Jesus Christ for a number of years. But would you say that in that time that uh, there, there have been those ups and downs, those rows, those uh, valleys, the peaks? We've all had them. Jacob had some struggles before that meeting in Bethel. But now, with his newly found heart, what's up ahead? Because think about this. Here was a man who, with his mother, had conspired, schemed, and tricked both his father and his brother out of a blessing and birthright of the firstborn. And as a consequence, he put his life at risk of death by by running. I mean, when he left Beersheba, he left alone. He left without anything. Didn't take anything with him. But in his flight from the consequence of his character, the Lord God Almighty, El Shaddai, in sovereign mercy, gives Jacob that unconditional promise of his constant presence, of his constant protection on his journey, and he would bring him safely to the home of his uncle Laban in Haran. But the question that we need to ask is, would Jacob still try to do things his way? Because I know that when you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you said he's given me a new heart, he's given me a new life. We know we read Second Corinthians chapter five seventeen. It says, Behold, I'm a new creature in Christ. The old things are passed away, all things have become new. But we still struggle with the flesh. And there are times when we struggle with what we were before we became a believer. Do we have enough trust with God and trust toward God that He would help us to put those things to rest? Because a lot of times we're the ones that bring the the past up. God said, I already forgave you. We bring the past up. So, would Jacob still try to do things his way? Would he still try to live up to his name? Heel catcher, conniver, schemer, supplanter. Would he try? 
Would he still try to, to be in that outthink mode, you know, even to this point of trying to outthink God? Have you ever tried to outthink God? I know you've tried, you won't admit it, but I know you've tried and you fail. Because none of us can outthink God. Yet we try to use the tricks that we used to use in the past to get what we wanted and to get what we want today. So how would Jacob deal with the fact that God had a plan that covered all of his life? And by the way, God has a plan for you too. How would Jacob deal with the fact that God had had a plan that covered all of his life, that God had previously planned and provided for all of his needs since day one of his birth to the day of his death, and that God is totally reliable and trustworthy, and that he wants only the best for his people? So I'm sure that Jacob still struggled, as some of us do, as most of us do, with trusting only himself. That was a struggle. Because that's how he lived for 70 plus years of his life, trusting only himself. Some people have this terrible tendency also to hold out on God until he has met all of our demands. Now don't say you never tried that. The term of our trust or our total trust runs like this sometimes. Are you ready? Lord! If you will give me a good paying job and a brand new car and give me the right husband or wife or bring my spouse back home to me, heal my body, straighten up my finances, save all my children, then, Lord, then, Lord, then I will serve you. But do you know that that is totally opposite to the way that we are to approach God now from the Word of God? It isn't about saying to him, Lord, if you will do this, 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 and this, and this, then I will serve you. That sounds like the flesh to me. What the Bible says is there is only one God and we're to serve him. We're to come to him and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for giving me life. Thank you for giving me all that you've given me because I would have nothing without you. And it isn't anything of, of, of sustenance or substance that I want to get from you. I just, I'm just thankful for what you've given to me. And I want to use all of that for your glory, honor, and praise. And then I leave it up to you, Lord. And what does God promise? To bless those who honor Him. To bless those who honor Him. You know, we sometimes act as if the Lord needs us. Because we're so valuable. Now, but now we are valuable to the Lord, but we, we sometimes think we're really, really valuable. God can't do anything without us. Oh, He can do a lot without us. But He always provides. David in Psalm 23 said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Which translates very beautifully to this. The Lord God is my shepherd. I have everything I need because of Him. I have everything I need. And Peter can add to that, that we have everything that we need for life and godliness through Jesus Christ. Our good shepherd. We have everything that we need. So if we sometimes act as if the Lord needs us because we're so valuable, as if if the Lord would have to bless us just because of who we are, you know, that's... What kind of foolishness is that? 
So it brings to mind these two questions that we're going to apply to the life of Jacob, but we're, we're going to see ourselves in this. And that, oh, oh, by the way, we, I don't know who that is. I brought that picture up and I, I still forgot to put it up there for a while. Anyway, that's supposed to be Jacob and Laban. I don't know which one's which. All right. I, I really don't, you know, and I guess that's Leah Rachel in the background, but, but yeah, that's, that's supposed to be Laban and, and uh, Jacob or Jacob and Laban. And, you know, if, if, if Laban's, uh, I should say, if Jacob is 77 years old, we would think, well, that's the guy with a white beard. Yeah, but if, if, that's, if that's Laban on the left, then, uh, you know, he, he looks pretty good. He must be using Grecian formula because that's his uncle, you know, so I don't know who it is. So we won't worry about that picture. <clears throat> but here's the questions. All right. I just want to make sure you're still here with me. Here's the question. Will you fail to trust God? Will you fail to trust God? Or will you finally take God at His word? Will you fail to trust God? Or will you finally take God at His word? I know it's going to be about Jacob, but it's about us too. And I think the first thing that we would say is, well, wait a minute, I trust the Lord because I trust what the Proverbs 3 verse 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. How many of you love that verse? I I love that verse of scripture. Okay, next week we need to have more hands that love it, okay? How many of you love that verse? Uh, I knew you were here. Okay. Yeah, we do love it because it's a great encouragement. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Do you do that on a daily daily basis? Because that's what we should all do. In all the ways that we participate in life, we're to acknowledge Him. He's got to be first. He's got to be first mentioned. He's got to be last mentioned. He's got to be always mentioned. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. If you've been wondering, where am I going? Which, which way am I going? Lord, I don't know. I don't. Well, are you acknowledging Him in all your ways? Because if you are, then He'll direct your paths. So you've got to rest in Him. You've got to trust in Him. goes back to verse 5. But look at verse 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. That was Jacob for 70 plus years of his life. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Now, he couldn't fear the Lord before because he really didn't know the Lord until Bethel. Are we fearing the Lord because we know Him? Which means, do we reverence Him? Do we respect Him? Do we hold Him in high regard, higher than anything or anyone? Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. So if there's some evil thought or evil thing, got to depart from it. And then verse 8 says, It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. There's a benefit when we trust in the Lord this way. And then honor the Lord with your possessions. Oh, we don't like this verse, but you have to like it. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. We have to remember what we have is only lent to us by the Lord. It still belongs to Him. But there's a benefit. There's a blessing. Look, 
So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. You'll never hurt when you honor the Lord first. So isn't that a beautiful thought? Now, understand that as we read on a little further here in chapter 3 of Proverbs, we find two verses that fit Jacob's situation and God's plan and purpose in spiritually sanctifying him, in spiritually growing him, and in spiritually maturing the chosen son of Abraham and Isaac. And that is the next two verses, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Just as a father, the son in whom he delights. What you need to understand about this is that when you feel disciplined or corrected or chastened by the Lord, it's because the Lord loves you. And he wants you to be more and more and more day by day made in the image of Christ. To be more of that way tomorrow than you are today. More in the image of Christ. More in love with Jesus. More in love with God's Word. By the way, we sometimes think of it as punishment. But that's not what this is. Please, please understand. Discipline, chastening, correcting is purifying. Some of you say, man, the Lord must love me a whole lot. Because I'm going through a whole lot. Yeah, that's true. That's true. He does love you a lot. And all of us, whether we want to admit it or not, but all of us go through trials and we go through troubles. Don't ever think that, you know, you hear sometimes people say, you know, if you're, in, if you're going through troubles, I mean, that's the devil and that's this and that. And then just, you're not trusting the Lord. No, no, no. We all go through troubles. Paul went through troubles. Peter went through troubles. All the apostles went through trials. The prophets. Nobody liked them. Well, some people did, but not everybody. So much so that the ones who didn't like them wanted to kill them. Because the word that they brought to the people was a word that was going to make them better, correct them, help them, discipline them. But they refused it and they rebelled. And they killed the prophets. What happened to the apostles? You see, do you understand now? This is not punishment. This is God working His work in us, sanctifying us, purifying us, strengthening us, equipping us, maturing us. And the means by which the Lord chooses to chasten and discipline and correct and prepare Jacob for his great prophetic role as the father of a great nation is through his uncle Laban, whereby Jacob, the supplanter, the heel catcher, the deceiver, the conniver, and the schemer, finally meets his match. Let 
We always we, we might sometimes think, you know, I'm the greatest thing. I'm the greatest one at doing something. No, there's always someone greater. <laughs> Jacob was a great conniver, but there was somebody greater than Jacob. His own uncle. But that brings us here now to a, to a principle in the scriptures. It brings us to something that we call recompense. It uh, brings us to that which we can actually understand as compensation. I know that some people might think of it in this term. What goes around comes around type of thing, right? The great principle is stated by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. You know, there's that statement that says, if you sow to the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. That principle will be at the forefront of the Lord's correction of Jacob. And it all begins with seemingly valid questions asked by Laban to his nephew in verse 15. So let's, let's go back to Genesis 29 verse 15. Because here are the questions now. With our understanding that uh, Jacob has been now in his house about a month or so. And it says, And Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now, this solicitation about wages by Laban is about the last good thing that we read of Jacob's uncle in the Scriptures. It's about the last good thing he does. Because everything else that he does, which the Scriptures record, is very condemning of Laban. But here, however, he realizes his obligation to pay Jacob. Now, he may have viewed it as wrong to keep Jacob working for nothing, even though Jacob was a relative, and he was even considerate enough to ask Jacob what he wanted for a wage. Now, these questions commended Laban as well as Jacob. Because what it says of Jacob is he wasn't a lazy freeloader. He involved himself in helping Laban around the property and household. And, and Laban obviously liked the way that Jacob worked. And I, and I think that that's a, that's a good principle for us to always keep in mind in our own hearts because of the days and times in which we live where it's awfully tough for some people sometimes to get a good job. But good workers will never have difficulty getting good jobs. Good workers will never have difficulty keeping good jobs. But the important thing is, if you want the job, you have to go to the Lord. The Lord knows exactly where He wants you to be. Now, Jacob uses the solicitation of Laban about wages to make his request now for a wife. And his proposal for his wage was also a proposal for marriage, in a sense. Notice, if you will, in verse 16. Because, well, you know, verse 15 tells us, you know, that he's given this opportunity to ask what he wants for his wages. But now this is inserted. Verse 16. Why did Moses put this verse here? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Why is this verse in here? It's in here. To show us that there's a choice being put before Jacob. Even though we know what Jacob wants. He wants Rachel. Then we're given a little description. 
Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of, of form and appearance. And, you know, when you look at it that in the context, you then have to think, okay, delicate, what does it mean? We're really not, real, we're not really sure when we look at the Hebrew word there for delicate or, or the phrase. But, but in context, we would have to think that it has to do something with, 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 with beauty. And, and, and uh, maybe she had a little bit of crossed eyes or maybe she had very weak eyes. Maybe she was very, you know, close to being blind. And she could, you know, we don't know. I'm not trying to, you know, suppose or super suppose what, what, what was wrong with Leah. But there's another thought. The thought that quite possibly also, there was something in Leah's eyes that says, eh, you know, she didn't really care about Jacob. But Rachel probably did. We've oftentimes heard of that sparkle in a person's eyes when it comes to love. And sometimes you just kind of know it when you see it. But Rachel was beautiful, a form and appearance. Her eyes sparkled. And it had to be more than that too, because you, you know, when, when Jacob saw Rachel there by the well coming... That might have been the time that he said, Lord, that's why you brought me here. She's why you brought me here. Remember God's providence. Jacob arrived in Haran with that spring in his step and that song in his heart. Now he's learning another song. A love song. And we're told in verse 18 that he loved her. Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. Hey, sound good so far? Sounds pretty hopeful here. Jacob is asking for Rachel. He says, hey, I don't want to give her to anybody else. I'll give her to you. You're a relative. <clears throat> Under the breath, in, in, in parentheses, he says, and he's wealthy. Because he's thinking of Isaac and Abraham. But Jacob made the whole trip with nothing. Nothing but time. So what did he offer? I'll give you seven years for Rachel. He says, all right, Laban says, stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Guys, don't, didn't you just feel that way when you saw your loved one, the, the one who's sitting next to you now? Just Wake him up, uh, ladies. Uh. Okay, talking to you guys. All, right. all that courting and, you know, oh, the time, oh God, you know, it wasn't even seven days, but, you know, here are seven years. That's love, isn't it? That's love. It seemed just like a few days. Jacob's offer to work for seven years for Rachel was essentially his offer of a dowry. 
In those days, of course, there was a dowry where someone had to come to say, you know, uh, you, you never went to the girl. There was no courting in, in this culture. So you went to the father of the, of, of the, of the girl and, and you said, look, I, I do want to marry your daughter. And this is what I have as a dowry. It could be riches. It could be all kinds of stuff. And there, there was a reason for that, you see, because even, even though J- Jacob came from that wealthy family, he left Beersheba with nothing. So before he could have Rachel as his wife, he had to provide evidence that he was fit to support a family as well as provide compensation for the bride's family for the taking of a daughter. In other words, Laban would be losing a shepherdess. Now I think all of us would agree that seven years was a very generous offer. Far more generous than a normal dowry. And Jacob didn't want to risk being turned down. Folks, that's love. I don't want any other quarter to come and put his foot in and say, Hey, you know, I got something better. No, I'll give you seven years. That was more than generous. But let's get this straight. Up to this point, Laban did not seek to exploit Jacob. We haven't seen that really yet. Laban didn't seek to exploit Jacob, and Jacob did not try to get something for nothing. But now our text gives us indication that Jacob is given a choice between two sisters. We, get that, we got that one verse. Leah, Rachel. Leah, the elder. Rachel, the younger. Simply, the elder was not as good-looking as the younger. And besides, Jacob had already fallen heels over head in love with Rachel. Heels over head in love. Now, I bet you you've heard that expression in a different way. Head over heels in love, right? Head over heels in love. Would you look at me? My head is already over my heels. What's so exciting about that? I think they should change the expression. Heels over head in love. Why? Because, man, when you see the person that you love for the first time, you are doing cartwheels. Now your heels are above your head. You're doing flips. And now your heels are above your head. Head over heels? Come on. My head, look at you. Your head's over your heels too. So I'm not alone here. I just had to do that. I don't know. So he fallen head over heels or heels over head in love with, with, with Rachel. So who did he choose? Rachel. He loved her not only for her beauty. She was industrious. She worked. She worked hard. I'm sure there were a lot of other qualities that wowed Jacob. But I think more than anything else, it was that meeting at the well. And God having already spoken, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to provide for you. What did Jacob carry in his heart? The fact that he was the one through whom the seed of the woman was to come that would eventually lead to the birth of Messiah, Jesus Christ. I had to have been somewhere deep inside that frame of Jacob. So here's the difference between love that has been to Bethel And love that has not been anywhere. A love that is motivated by the love of God. 
will go a long way. It will serve a long time. It will be blessed for a long time. A love that's been nowhere can come and go. And Jacob said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. Now that, for us, that would be a lesson in patience, wouldn't it? Seven years to wait for Rachel. Would we be able to promise to wait that long, much less just wait that long for the perfect one? Would we? Would we be able to? I think in our day and time, we don't understand what patience really is. I think we've lost a sense of patience because we live in such a a fast-paced, instant-everything society. Now, about 30 years ago, I used to talk about patience and tell people, listen, you know, we, we, live in a, we, we live in a very fast-moving society. You know, we have instant mashed potatoes now. We have instant coffee, instant this, instant that. All you got to do is add water. And all that stuff, everybody says, eh, you know, that's, that's no big deal. Today, we got Internet. Today, we got the web. At our, and, and I bet you some of you are carrying all of your real computer files and everything in that phone of yours, the smartphone, the, the phone that's smarter than we are. Right? I've got one. It is smarter than me. I don't know how to work it, but I just have one. You know, those of you that have the ones that talk back to you, mine laughs back at me. So, you know, here's the thing. We have everything right at, at our, you know, at our beck and call. We just, it's just there. Whatever we need, whatever we want. And we get fixed in our heads that that's the way life has to be. And we lose sight of what God is trying to teach us about patience. Jacob was willing to wait because his heart was fixed upon Rachel. Listen, are are we seeing the fruit of the Spirit being tried and tested in the life of Jacob through these trials? If he came to the Lord, the Lord filled him with everything that he needed, certainly with his Spirit, to commune with, with him. And we know what it says in Galatians 5 that Paul gives us concerning the fruit of the Spirit. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love. I mean, that, that's, that's the outside covering of, of that fruit that just holds it all together. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It is joy. That's, that's the spring in the step and the song in the heart that he had after he came to know the Lord. And then there's peace. When God is present in our lives, it doesn't matter how much chaos is around us. It doesn't matter how many struggles we might be dealing with. If God is with us, there's a peace in our hearts. But then quite necessary is the next strongest part of the fruit of the Spirit, and that's patience, which is called here long-suffering. Now, how can we understand that better? Long-suffering. 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 
So, okay, you got the idea. You got the picture. Long suffering. We don't know when an answer may come. But we can trust God that an answer will come. If God was patient to wait for us, can we be patient to wait for Him? And then, of course, there's kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness, self-control against such. There is no law. Patience. Instant society people, we just say, long-suffering? What's long-suffering? I don't want long-suffering. I want patience and I want it now. Lord, give it to me now. Now, see, is that good? That's, that's the way we try to approach God sometimes in our prayers. I need an answer now. But Paul tells Timothy, his son in the faith, in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 11 of 1 Timothy, he says, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, pursue faith and love and patience. Pursue it. Now, that word pursue in the Greek is, is, is a lot stronger than, well, you know, the English word, because we'll say pursue means, well, just follow after these. Follow after it. No, no, pursue it. Pursue it like a hound dog. Pursue it like hounds that are going after that fox. Pursue it, you know, to, you know, to capture that prey, to get it, to grab it, to hold on to it, to keep it. You gotta pursue it. You gotta have, you know, you just gotta, I gotta, I'm, I'm losing everything. I've got this cord behind me. I've got my thing flying here. I'm getting all excited because you know what? It is a passionate thing when we pursue the things of God. We have to pursue it with a heart that is hot for God and for the things of God. And one of the things we need to pursue is patience. And we think, well, how do we do that? And when does that take place and how does it take place? I think James answers that question pretty well in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. He says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, the first thing we would say was, Wait a minute, I don't usually count it a joy when I'm doing trials here. But you see, we belong to God now. He's given us a new heart and a new mind and a new way of doing things in His Word. So guess what? We can count it a joy. Thank you, Lord. Why do we thank Him? Because He loves us enough to give us trials. To allow us those trials for a purpose. So, count it a joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that, here here it is, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. The testing of your faith produces patience. We would all love to go to school and never have a test. You know, it's summertime right now. Are any of you in school, by the way, summer school? A couple of you? Okay. We'll be praying for you. But you get back into school pretty soon, and, and, and you know what? School would be great if we didn't have to be tested. Right? No, that's, that's the wrong way to think. We are tested so that we can prove that we understand what we're learning because we're going to school so that we can better ourselves or get a better job or do all these other things. But the point is, the testing is important. So, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, 
This is a good thing. This is why we count it a joy that God loves us so much that He gives us these tests. And then He says, but let patience have its perfect work. You've got to let patience do its work in you. How long will that be? I have no idea for you. I have no idea for me. Because every situation is different. Every testing, every trial is a little different. Sometimes we get a quick answer. Sometimes the answer comes a little later. Sometimes it comes a few years later. Are some of you still waiting for some things that you've laid before the Lord? Are you still waiting maybe a year or two down the road? Guess what? Jacob waited seven years just for Rachel. And we're going to find out he didn't just wait seven years either. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, that you may be complete, lacking nothing. Isn't that a God that loves you so much? He doesn't want you to be lacking in anything. So He tests you so that you can be built up in the wonderful things of the Lord that eventually we can say all things, all trials, all troubles, all circumstances, all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to His purpose. His purpose for you. Lord, give us that true kind of patience today. Give us that kind of patience that we can wait. And in that waiting, we are built up. In that waiting, we are sanctified. We are matured. We are, we are grown in that waiting. So now we've got to move on here. Jacob committed himself as the dowry. I'll work for you seven years. Jacob committed to Laban. Laban complied. He says, all right. That's good. But now comes the compensation. Now comes the recompense, what the scriptures call the recompense. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. So you ready? Verse 21. Let's go back to verse 21 of our text. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go in to her. Now, the first impression is seven years have passed. I'm not quite sure that's what's happening here yet. Because if you look at the context of this conversation that's going on, there's a connection here. So, just hold to that thought, because we're going to solve this as we go along. And in reality, when we get to the time where we get to see the sons of Jacob, and look at, at, at that uh, uh, genealogy that's, that's begun for the, for the family of Jacob, when we get there, we, we'll be able to sort all of this out. But for now, just, just follow along with me. He says, give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go in to her. Speaking of Rachel. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place, and he made a feast. What Laban was saying is, okay, what we do in this community is when somebody is, has a daughter that's going to get married, we get everybody together, because it's a community thing. When we were in Israel back in November, uh, we were in the streets of, uh, 
of the Jewish quarter in, in, in Jerusalem. And, uh, oh, they have all these uh, things going on. This wasn't a wedding, but it was a, it was a, a, a bar mitzvah, actually. And uh, so a young 13-year-old boy, and they're carrying them on their shoulders. And then they're walking through there, and our, 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 our tours all together, you know. And, and we're just standing there watching this and taking pictures. And they said, please come and join us. And so we're over there, hey, you know, dancing and singing with all the, the people. We're having a great time. Because that's what they did. They brought the community together. Everybody celebrated. Nowadays, you know, you have a wedding and you got to go. You got to have an invitation. You can't get in security. What you got the invitation? Yeah, I got the invitation. Okay. And they say, hey, who are you? Do you have an invitation? Yeah, but I'm with him. I'm the, I'm the cousin, you know. Uh, el primo, you know. I'm the primo, you know. We, get, we got more people at the wedding, you know, the dancing, all of that kind of stuff, you know. They don't even know the bride and the groom. I don't know. But everybody knew everybody. So they had this feast that was prepared. This is the wedding feast. He made a feast. And part of the word feast there has to do with uh, uh, drinking. And, but I'm not saying that because I don't want to give you guys any ideas. Yeah. Oh, Pastor Charlie said the Bible said we can drink. And just drink up a storm. No. I didn't say that. But that was part of their feast anyway. Now it came to pass in the evening. Oh, by the way, the wedding feast was seven days. Seven days. You'll see that in just a moment. It came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter. This is Laban. He takes Leah, his daughter, and he brought her to Jacob. Leah! This is not Rachel. This is Leah. That tells us that Leah's in on this. And brought her to Jacob. Goes into the chuppah, the tent for the couple. Uh, there's no light in there, I'm sure. She's all decked out, kind of like Rachel. She goes in, and it tells us that he went into her. They had their time of intimacy and relationship. And then we're told that Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. She'll play a part in all of this later. So it came to pass in the morning. Light comes through the holes in the tent, I guess. And behold, it was Leah, the one with a problem of the eyes, you know. And he said to Laban, which means that Jacob, ah, and he gets up and he goes out the tent. Hopefully he puts him on. And he goes out the tent and he looks for Laban and he says to Laban this, he says, what is this that you've done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? Interesting words for a deceiver. Why have you deceived me? And Laban said, It must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. In, in, in effect, what Laban said to him was, Oh, didn't you know? You know, ignorance, ignorance is no excuse here. We respect the rights of the firstborn. Does that sound familiar to you? What are we talking about? Recompense? Compensation? 
So Laban says to Jacob, fulfill her week, the week of her wedding. You started it, Jacob. Fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. How many of you can add seven plus seven? Fourteen. Okay. Fulfill her week, the week of her wedding. And you know what's sad, though, is the next phrase. And we will give you this one also. That's how he spoke of his daughter, Rachel, the youngest one. Isn't that sad? That's kind of how they spoke about David when when Samuel came to Jesse's household and said, Hey, I'm looking. I want to see your sons. The Lord sent me here. There's this parade of sons going by, big, strong, smart, you know, whatever. And, and, and then they said, well, do you have any more sons? Yeah, there's David. He's out there with a the sheep. Puro apestoso and all of that. But, you know, he's out there. And, uh, well, bring him in. It was David. It was David. But here, here we have Rachel just kind of this one also. Isn't that sad? But that was the culture, folks. That was the culture. But he says, serve me another seven years. Well, what did Jacob do? Jacob did so. <laughs> and fulfilled her week. Married to Leah. So he gave him his daughter Rachel as wife also. Now, are you understanding now that we really haven't gone through 14 years yet or seven years even? All right, just keep that in mind. And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Oh, she plays a part in all of this later too. And then Jacob also went into Rachel and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. Does that sound familiar to you? Isaac loved Esau. It was his favorite. Rebecca loved Jacob. Jacob was her favorite. But see, now he's married to Leah and Rachel. But he still has his favorite. And that will cause some problems later. And he served Laban still another seven years. Oh, you can't deny how much he loved Rachel. But now for a moment, let's consider something about this time frame. Uh, and I've got to do this kind of quickly. Uh, first of all, and, and by the way, again, we're, we're going to kind of deal with this when we see the sons of, of Jacob. But for a moment, let's consider something about this time frame. First of all, Jacob was willing to invest not only seven years, but 14 years of hard work for uh, the woman of his affection, which was Rachel. But here's what we need to think about. That Jacob didn't have to wait 14 years to get Rachel. When taking a very close look at the text, and this has, has been suggested by a few very good theologians and Bible teachers as well, it is quite possible that Jacob was given Leah just a few days after he made the first deal with Laban, and then he received Rachel just a few more days after that. Now just keep this in mind. So Jacob now had two wives within about a month. And the scriptures say that when Rachel gave birth to Joseph that Jacob wanted to return to his father Isaac in Canaan after already completing 14 years of service, which is just in the next chapter, chapter 30, verses 25 and following. So Jacob had one daughter and 11 sons born during these 14 years. To Leah, to Leah's maidservant Zilpah, and Rachel's maid Bilhah, 
And finally to Rachel. Because remember, well, we'll see that Rachel was actually barren to begin with. But she'll finally give birth. So if Jacob had waited seven years to get Leah, there's no way to fit 12 births into a seven-year time span. So, again, we'll, we'll deal with that later. We'll kind of cons- consider all of the things about that. But this is just something to think about. The point is this. Here's the point. As Jacob invested his love, his love grew. He didn't let his uncle Laban's tricks stop him. He was willing to pay the price for Rachel's love. But now we have to consider the recompense. I'm going to go over just a little bit, okay? So please bear with me. We've got to deal with the recompense. Jacob agreed to work for seven years as a dowry for Rachel. As the arrangements were being made and a feast was being prepared, he learned that his compensation was not what he thought it would be. He received Leah instead of Rachel and then had to work an additional seven years for the woman he truly loved. But Jacob must have seen God's hand in this recompense. He had to have seen it. Because you know what? We've seen it. Let's look at that. First, Jacob had deceived his father. Now he was deceived by his father-in-law. Recompense. Secondly, Jacob, the younger son, substituted himself for the elder son Esau to deceive Isaac. And now he has the elder daughter Leah substituted for the younger Rachel by Laban. Recompense. Thirdly, Jacob deceived Isaac by allowing his mother to cover his hands and neck with goat skins. Leah came into his tent veiled and most probably wearing his sister's clothing and perfumes. Looks like Rachel's dressing. Smells like Rachel. Must be Rachel. Was it? Remember earlier on? Looks like Esau. Smells like Esau. Must be Esau. Feels like Esau. Must be Esau. Nope. Deception. Deception, deception, deception. And it all came back on Jacob. The deceiver was deceived by a better deceiver. But here's the problem. Remember that just because Jacob deceived his father and cheated his brother, this isn't the problem, I'll show you the problem in a minute. But just remember that because Jacob deceived his father and cheated his brother, God's plan did not change for Jacob. God knew all along what he had to work on in Jacob. Just like he knows all along what we have to be worked on every day as believers in Jesus Christ. What did change, or what God was going to do with Jacob, was discipline him. He was going to correct him. He was going to chasten him. And he was going to teach him some valuable lessons. The Lord enrolled Jacob in the school of hard knocks for his bachelor degree in the first seven years of service to Laban. And then he would send him for his postgraduate work in the school of difficult experience with a major in reaping what you sow. But let me say that all this didn't justify Laban's actions. It did not justify Laban's actions. In fact, Laban, who is a perfect example of a deceptive manipulator, he would get what he wanted. Yeah, he got what he wanted. Both of his daughters married to an apparently wealthy man. 
And yet he also would reap what he sowed. By his actions, he brought problems into his family, making it very difficult for his daughters to be kind to each other. Folks, may I just say to you that polygamy only causes problems within households? Polygamy only causes problems within households. We don't go into that in any great detail. This was only an allowance by God. This was not God's standard. We know what God's standard was. Genesis chapter 2. For a man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall cleave, cling to his one wife, singular, and they too shall be one flesh. A lot of good standards set here for our day and time because there are so many struggles in all of these issues. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, man, woman, man, husband, wife, and they become one flesh. That's the standard. After this, the fall, and then there came the the polygamy and all of these other things. God allowing it, the, the law, of course, would be said and established later, but... You know, here again, it, it, it took a long time for this to get through. Even through the times of David and the kings. Allowance, but not law. But even if there were cultural distinctions about the firstborn daughter, things could have been worked out based on, even on the obvious love expressed by Jacob for Rachel. Why did Laban have to do what he did? was the only thing about himself. Obviously, Laban was one person who didn't practice trusting in the God of Abraham. Didn't practice what he was, uh, what Jacob thought. You know, well, you know, there, of course, they still understand there's only one God, the God of Abraham. Didn't trust in him. Now, some might call what happened to Jacob poetic justice. Jacob reaped what he sowed. We do know that God sees to it that in what measure we meet it is measured to us again uh, Matthew chapter 7 as a matter of fact verses 1 and 2 just not that you be not judged for with what judgment you judge you will be judged and, and the last part is what's important here with the measure you use it will be measured back to you Laban obviously didn't care about Jacob's feelings much like Jacob didn't care about his father's feelings for Esau Jacob would have would have to reap what he sowed but so would Laban eventually You see, the mills of God grind slow, but they grind exceedingly fine. The domestic difficulties would begin simply because Jacob had reckoned without the Lord. We probably knew Laban would not trust the Lord anyway, but Jacob had just come to know his God. Come to have that relationship with the Lord. And now... It's being tested. His faith in his God is being tested. And here we see that he reckons without the Lord. I mean, did we see any time at all in this place that Jacob went to the Lord and said, Lord, why is this happening? What could have caused this to happen? Listen, Lord, help me. Give me wisdom. Something. Nothing. We don't see it. No response in prayer. There's no seeking the face of the Lord for wisdom. And the lessons in the school of difficult experiences would get even more challenging, as we'll see next time. So as we close here today, there are two pieces of advice that we need to give. One to Laban and one to, one to Jacob. And by the way, it's for us too. 
The piece of advice for Laban is this, Proverbs 21, verse 30, There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. In other words, there is no plan or scheme, no wisdom or insight that can succeed against the Lord. No plan can succeed against God. It might appear that it will succeed for a little while. No, it will not. It will not ultimately succeed. But for Jacob, there's a word of encouragement. And that I hope for all of us. And that's Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Oh, if Jacob had only called upon the Lord. How about if we just say, oh, if I had only called upon the Lord. Maybe I wouldn't have gone through as much of the pain of the testing if I had just trusted God. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and their unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. You know what the implication is here? That sometimes we leave the Lord and we start to do bad things, wicked things. But we've been with the Lord. That's, that's the implication. Because to say return to the Lord, let him return to the Lord, means you've been there already, but you've gone away. Now you need to come back. That may be some of us here. We've left the Lord. Oh, you, you might be coming to church every week, and I might see your face. And I, and I love you for being here, and I thank the Lord for you, and I pray for you and all. But you know what? It's what you do during the week. You know, I... Some people actually think that I look into your windows and see what you're doing. I, I, I don't do that. I, I can't. But, is, but you know, there's someone who's there. The Spirit of God is with you. He knows. We've got to put away some of the things we're doing. God's speaking to you. Return to the Lord. And He'll have mercy on you and to our God return to him for he will abundantly pardon he has forgiveness for you the parable of the prodigal son to me is probably the most personal passage of scripture for me to think of someone who turns his back on his family to take what he said belonged to him, an inheritance, and to go and to waste it all on, on prodigal living, wantonness. To find yourself in a humiliating position and situation. And to talk to yourself and say, you know, if I just, maybe I'll, if I just go back, uh, you know, I, I'll just... Find some word to say, and maybe I can be a servant in that house. He gets up, he goes. The father had been praying every day to see his son again. Sees him on the horizon and doesn't wait for the son to come. Uncharacteristically, he lifts up his robe, he ties it and binds it around himself, and he starts running. And he runs and falls upon his son. And he loves him and kisses him. And the guy stinks, man. He's got hog breath and all kinds of other stuff. Man. Just, or carob breath, actually. 
but he smells like hogs because he's been living and eating with them. But he kisses him. The father kisses him, ignores all of, all of that and loves him back and puts a robe on him, puts new shoes on him and gives him a ring. And he says, oh, this child who was lost to me has been found. This child who was dead to me in a sense is alive again. That's the mercy of God for you if you'll just come back to Him. Consider your life this way. Will you today fail to trust God or will you finally take God at His word?